everybody. Welcome to Remnant. How are we doing? Excellent. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm really glad you're here. Um, we're in this series about what in the world is going on. And uh, I don't know any of us who have uh, looked out at the world and not had serious questions, serious concerns, uh, even anxiety and worry about what we're seeing in our world today. And many of us throughout our lives, you know, we've, we've always thought we had moments where we had everything under control. And then usually what happens is we realize we don't and we never did. And sometimes that leads us to depend on ourselves more. Sometimes that leads us to turn to other things. But most of us who are following Jesus got to a point in our lives where we just had to know. It's just that simple. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were Christian. That's what I'd been taught the whole time growing up. But I got to a point in my adult life where I was like, you know what? I just got to know. I can't depend on anybody else's faith. I can't depend on what anybody else believes. I have to know for myself that this God is real. And when my heart turned to want to know him, that's when everything changed. When this was an intellectual pursuit, I learned a lot about him, but I never really met him. It was only when my heart moved to, I just have to know. It's the most important thing in my life. God, if you're really there, if Jesus is really real, I just have to know. And God has revealed himself over and over to millions of people. And so we come back here every week just wanting to know more, wanting to understand more. And particularly as we see our world getting more and more out of control, there's something in us that just says, you know what? I'm kind of freaking out what's happening. I got to know what's going on. And so we've been studying for the last several weeks some of the signs that God told us. Because he told us, don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Don't freak out. Certain things are going to happen. There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. Don't freak out. Let me tell you what's going to happen in advance before it happens. And you'll see signs. You'll begin to see things. I promise you, I'm going to tell you in advance what's going to happen. And if you're awake and you're aware, you will see those signs. And we've been talking about how those signs in our world right now are flashing all over the place. And we talked a few weeks ago about the sign of humanism, the apostasy, the false teaching that humans can be God, that we don't need God, that we can do it ourselves. We talked last week about how it, the globalism, the, the world is shrinking, and that allows a false message to be disseminated worldwide. It's, it's fertile soil for what God says will be the end times. And people ask me, I had several people this week email me and say, how do you know for sure? How can you be so sure? I mean, yeah, there are prophecies, and yeah, they all came true, and yes, they were down to extreme detail, but, but how can you be so sure of what's going to happen? And I asked them, do you know what a covenant is? Do you understand what a covenant is? You see, God made covenants with man. He made promises for us. Not contracts where you can tear them up if one side doesn't do what they're supposed to do, but covenants, an eternal, never-changing promise from God to us. One of the covenants that God gave us was during Noah and with the rainbow. When you see that in the sky, you will know that God will not destroy the entire earth again. It's a covenant. It's a promise from God. It's not a coincidence that in Revelation, as we will study it, when the throne of heaven is shown, guess what's above it? 
a rainbow, reminding us that God's promises are true. So a covenant is a formal, solemn, binding agreement. And a covenant from God adds the word eternal to that. When God makes a promise, He makes a promise. And there are four unconditional, unilateral, eternal covenants that God made with Abraham and Abraham's descendants, which would include us. Let me run through those again. They are unconditional. There is no condition upon which these covenants will or can be broken. They are unilateral. They are on God's side to accomplish. They don't require our work. They don't require our participation. In fact, even when we are against those covenants, they still happen because God said they would happen. And they are eternal. Many of these covenants extend into eternity and will extend into eternity because God is the same today as He is tomorrow as He will always be. And we need to understand that Israel will ultimately fulfill many of these covenants during the millennial kingdom, and we'll get to that. But these covenants set up the signs of end times. The framework of the covenant for end times is found in Genesis 12, and it's a covenant God made with Abraham. Now, I'm going to go through a lot of scripture tonight. I gave you a list. You can look through it at your leisure later. I don't want you to get blown away with all the scripture, but on the other hand, I'd rather you hear God's words than my words. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 15, 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, talking about Ishmael. Your very own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, He looked towards the heaven and numbered the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then in verse 13, The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offsprings will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted 400 years. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. That is a promise from God that, oh, by the way, just sort of an aside, the Jewish people are going to be taken to Egypt, and they're going to be enslaved, not for 384 years, not for 420 years, for 400 years. And not only are they going to come out, I'm going to punish the nation that holds them in slavery, and they're going to leave with possessions. The book of Exodus, told in advance by God. He continues, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. To your offspring, I give this land. From the river of Egypt, the great river, to the river Euphrates. Okay, God made a covenant. Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. 
No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make unto you nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. God promised Abram, you're going to have many, many descendants and the land I'm giving you is yours forever. It will always be your land. It will be your land even into eternity. It will be your land. It's yours. I'm giving it to you. The sign of that covenant was circumcision. That's why circumcision was so important to Jewish people. They were covenant. They were part of that relationship. God had made a promise to them. And the promise was many things. There would be kings and nations that would come after them. They would have land that would be theirs. And notice the promise here from God in the Abrahamic covenant. One, Abraham would be blessed and his name would be great. Here we are 2,000 years later. His name's pretty great. All the world will be blessed because of him. Why? Because from his descendants will come Jesus Christ. Through him, the entire world has been blessed. Promise, he promises third that the descendants will make up a great nation. That the Jewish people will be a great nation. And fourth, that their promised land will be an eternal inheritance. So we see the nature of this covenant, this promise from God. It's unconditional. There are no conditions where this will not happen. It was a very unusual covenant, though. And let me just sort of digress for a minute. But the way they did covenants in, in these days back then, the Babylonians did it, the, all of them did this. When two people made a covenant, they would take animals and they would sacrifice them and cut them in half. And they'd put one half over here and one half over here. They let the blood pool in the middle. And the two of them would walk arm in arm through that blood, making a covenant promise. And that covenant promise was, be this happen to me if I break what I'm saying. Okay? So in other words, if I walk through a blood covenant with somebody, and then I don't do what I say, may my blood be spilled for it. Okay? Now, a very interesting thing happened in the Abram covenant between Abraham and God. They split the animals, which was normal. But what happened was, before they were to walk through the blood together, God put Abraham in a deep sleep, using the same word of Adam when woman was created. He put him in a deep sleep, and the Shekinah glory, the, the glory of God, walked between the animals. It did something that was very unique. It made this a unilateral covenant. The only person making a promise in this covenant was God himself. No matter what Abraham's descendants did, no matter what anybody else who ever lives ever does, God has made these promises. I will bring you back to your land. You will be a great nation. The blessed one, the Messiah will come through you. It's a unilateral covenant. God will be faithful to bring about those four things. Bless Abraham and make his name great. Bless the world because of him. Make his descendants a great nation. Give them the promised land for all of eternity. 
And when God makes a promise, it's as good as done. It's going to happen. People ask me, how do you know? How do you know for sure that what God says is going to happen in end times is going to happen? And I'm like, because he's a covenant God. Have you seen a Jewish person lately? Were they standing next to an Assyrian? How about a Babylonian? Did you see the Babylonians come to church last week? No. God made a promise thousands of years ago that the Jewish people would still be here. And they're here. And they've been more persecuted than almost anybody. Why are they here? Because of the Abrahamic covenant. God promised it, and it's happening. This covenant had no conditions on it. And scripture repetitively over and over says this covenant is eternal. Unconditional, eternal promises from God. The promises are the seed, the soil, and salvation. That there will be descendants, there will be land, and there will be blessing. So part of that covenant is a land covenant. Okay, now these covenants play out in times. You want to know what's going on in times? God's promises are coming true. There are seven major pieces in this covenant. I don't expect you to know them. I'm going to go through them quickly, but you're going to be aware of them. The nation will be plucked from the land for its unfaithfulness. There will be a future repentance of Israel. The Messiah will return. Israel will be restored to the land. Israel will be converted as a nation. Israel's enemies will be judged. And the nation will receive her full blessing. Okay, those are promises from God about the land. Thank you. Let me run through them again. The nation will be pulled away because of unfaithfulness. There will be a future repentance one day of Israel. The Messiah will return. Israel will be restored to the land. Israel will be converted as a nation. There will be a day when the Jewish people come back to Jesus and announce that he is the Messiah. Israel's enemies will be judged and the nation will receive the full blessing that God has for them and for us. The only conditional feature in the land covenant is time. Israel's repentance and their restoration to the land and the Lord are certain. The only thing that's not known is when will that happen. This covenant was not literally filled during the Old Testament, so its realization has to be in the future. There's another covenant that plays out in end times. It's called the Davidic covenant. I won't go into that in detail, but what it says is, is that someone from David's lineage will rule Israel and sit on the throne forever. Want to guess who that is? That's Jesus. And then there's this covenant that's made with you and me. The fourth covenant I'm going to talk about that is playing out in our lives. It's in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, that's sin, and I will remember their sin no more. Even though the church participates in the blessing of the new covenant, this does not set aside God's clear promises that were made to Israel. These promises will be restored when Israel returns back to their land, the land that was promised to them. After they return back to their land, they will undergo a national conversion, an awakening, a revival, an awareness that Jesus is the Messiah. They'll receive forgiveness, they'll get a new heart, and they will experience the Holy Spirit and the righteousness that comes with that and the full knowledge of God, just like the Gentiles have experienced in the Gentile era. The entire end times plays out because of God's covenant relationship with Israel. It's critical that we understand that. Do you know why God repetitively gave the Israelites and gives you and me a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a, a millionth chance to do it again? Because his covenant is unconditional. No matter what we do, he's going to complete what he promised to do. God is who he says he is. We say this every week. God is who he says he is. He's going to do what he said he would do because he's a covenant God. If he made a promise, it's as good as done. These four unconditional, unilateral, eternal covenants with Israel will be fulfilled in the future, not because they have to be, but because of the faithfulness of the one who made the covenant. God will keep his word to Abraham and to his descendants, not because of their worthiness. In fact, they're totally unworthy, and so are you and I. But because his own word, his own holiness, his own reputation is that he is a God who keeps a promise. Even, let me just, this just hit me. Let me just pull this up. Um, even at the end of Joseph's life, um, Get this, Joseph is on, remember Joseph with the brothers, right? And the brothers and the whole thing. Okay. Here's what he says. I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, the land he promised in his oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What he says is, look, I'm getting ready to leave. But there's one thing I know for absolute sure. What I know for sure is the promise God made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and through Joseph. It's going to happen. You will be in the promised land. And as you can see, these covenants as they play out will determine the course of human future events. That's why they're important to us when we look at end times. God's promises are unconditional to Israel and they're eternal and they haven't yet been fully completed. So it stands to reason that those promises will be filled in the future. It also makes sense because of God's long-standing relationship with Israel that literal Israel will see God fulfill these promises and they will receive the benefits. This isn't going to be some spiritual version of Israel. It's going to be a literal nation of people who have come back to the land promised to them. It will include the clear part that the entire world plays in what God is doing. 
And every event that we're going to talk about throughout the rest of this series is going to tie back to the covenant relationship that God made with Israel. God clearly blessed Abraham and made his name great. He blessed his offspring through sending Jesus to all of us. We, every family of the world has been blessed because of Abraham's faithfulness. But the last two promises are yet to be fulfilled. Promises that his descendants would make up a great nation and that that promised land will be an eternal inheritance. Israel is the battleground for all great end time conflicts. It's where it's going to play out. The people of Israel, the Jewish people, have to be preserved. They have to be regathered to their ancient homeland in order to set the stage for end times to happen. Without Israel as a nation, without the Jewish people coming back to the homeland, nothing can happen in end times because God promised that would happen and that that would be a sign to us. Now you can imagine, go back to like 1900 or 1880, how foreign the idea of millions of Jewish people coming back to the Holy Land seemed to them. But the return of Jewish people to the promised land is the most promised, prophesied event in end times second to the return of Jesus. Almost all key events in end times hinge on the existence of the nation of Israel. The Bible predicts over and over that Jews must be back in their homeland for the end times to occur. Let me read many of them to you. Amos 9.14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I've given them, says the Lord your God. Ezekiel 36.22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. In other words, this has nothing to do with your performance. I'm holy. I keep my promises. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you, God says, and cause you to walk in my statues and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Jeremiah 31, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land I gave to their fathers and they shall take possession of it. Zechariah 10.6, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I, the Lord, and their God, and I will answer them. I will whistle for them and gather them in as I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. 
Isaiah 62, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it praise in the earth. Ezekiel 30, or 11, 17, therefore says the Lord, I will gather you from all the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come, they will remove from it detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove their heart of stone. They'll be my people. I'll be their God. It's clear in Scripture. God says, look, I'm going to bring my people back. Some of them don't even know they're my people. When the northern country of uh, Judah... And Israel, when they split and when the Assyrians came in, many Jewish people were dispersed across the world. Ten tribes. Many people don't even know where those tribes went. There are people that are Jewish descendants who have no idea. God says, look, I'm bringing everybody back. In fact, we'll learn in Revelations. He says, I'm bringing everybody back and I'm bringing every tribe back. Minus one. I'm bringing every tribe back. We'll talk about it. There'll be these witnesses that come out of each tribe and they will be here and they will be telling the truth and millions of Jewish people will respond and they will be saved. God gives another example of bringing people back. And I know I'm beating this to death, but I'm going to close it and bring it to you in a few moments. There's a story in Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me out of the spirit of the Lord and he set me down in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones. And he led me around them, and behold, there were many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and you cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you will live, and you will know that I am the Lord. He continues, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and I prophesied there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Note that this is a physical regathering. The bodies have come back together, but they're not yet spiritual bodies. So he continues. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great, don't miss it, army. You see, what he's talking about is these bones. First, they came back physically. And then, just like man was born, they came back spiritually. The breath entered them. They became spiritual beings. Who, who are these bones? I mean, a great story, but who are the bones? Okay, next verse. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I will open your graves, I will raise you from your graves. O oh, my people, I will bring you into the land of Israel. There's that promise again. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves. O oh, my people. 
I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. So the image that God gave Ezekiel and Ezekiel gives to us is that the nation of Israel will first be restored physically. The bones will come together, but there'll be a lifeless corpse. They will be a nation that's together, but they don't yet have the spirit of God. They don't yet know Jesus. But then the lifeless corpse like you and me and all of us before we knew Jesus will undergo a spiritual restoration and they will be spiritually regenerated as God breathes spiritual life into a lifeless nation. The spiritual regeneration will occur with the Jewish people and they will recognize Jesus as their Messiah and it will happen during and after the time of tribulation. But what we're seeing are the flashing signs that this is about to happen. We're beginning to see that the Jewish people are indeed gathering back together in the land promised to them. Like has never been seen before. The modern return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel has been called the miracle on the Mediterranean. Such a return of people scattered throughout the entire world is unprecedented in human history. It has never happened before. Indeed, the Jewish people are the only exiled people to remain a distinct people despite being dispersed to over 70 countries for more than 20 centuries. Think about that. The Jewish people for 20 centuries have been sent around the world and they still hold their identity as Jewish people. Man, that's a coincidence. The empires of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, all ravaged the land of the Israelites, took their people captive, scattered them throughout the earth. Even after this, they suffered persecution, organized massacre, and a holocaust like we have never seen before in the lands that they were exiled to. And yet, God says, despite all that, they're coming back. For centuries, people could not understand end times prophecy because they couldn't imagine a Jewish nation. And as a result, they began to believe we must already be in the tribulation. The return of Jewish people to the Holy Land began in 1871. By 1881, there were about 25,000 Jewish people who had settled there. During World War I, the British Empire wanted to get the support of those Jewish people around the world. And the British Foreign Minister, Arthur Balfour, brought forth what is known as the Balfour Declaration in 1917. In a letter, he gave approval to the Jewish goal of reclamation. His Majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for Jewish people. The declaration stirred Jewish hopes in the long-promised Holy Land in scriptures. And in 1914, there were 80,000 Jewish people in the Holy Land. And by the beginning of World War II, that number had jumped to 450,000. The Second World War and Nazi Germany's treatment of Jewish people created worldwide sympathy and a favorable environment for them. 
Hitler's atrocities actually provided the greatest momentum for the establishment of a homeland for Jewish people, and the United Nations approved that homeland May 14, 1948. This new nation was given 5,000 square miles and had a population of 650,000 Jews and several hundred thousand Arabs. And wave after wave of immigrants have poured into Israel from all over the world, most notably Ethiopia and the former Soviet Union. In 2009, for the first time since A.D. 135, there are more Jews in Israel than any other place on earth. Today in the U.S., there are 5.2 million Jews here. In Israel, there are 5.4 million. In 1948, 6% lived there. Today, 40%. For the first time in 2,000 years, the Jews have returned and continue to come home to their land exactly as the ancient prophets predicted, and it is a flashing light for us about the end times. Prophetically, the preparations over the last 130 years are staggering. For the first time in 2,000 years, the Jews have returned and continue to come to their homeland. All ancient kingdoms, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, have turned to dust, and you can visit the ruins of those places. Those civilizations don't exist anymore. Why do they not exist? Because they opposed Israel. And God promised that every nation that opposes Israel will end up destroyed. It has happened over and over and over, and it's going to happen to the U.S. if we don't support Israel. The destructions of nations who opposed Israel was foretold by God way back in Genesis. Genesis 12, 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land. I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So clearly one of the flashing lights of end times is added to our dashboard next to apostasy and next to humanism and across from globalism. We now have the light of Israel shining as a blinking light to get ready. There's another light I want to talk about tonight, which is the light of the coming of Middle East peace. I tried to name it peaceism. So I could keep the ism theme going, but it's just not going to work. First Thessalonians 5.1 Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come on them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. There will be a time of world peace before Jesus' return. And we're going to talk far more about it in the weeks to come. But remember that end times are spiritual events, aren't they? We're seeing spiritual things happen in our world. Satan is preparing the world for his agenda and his doctrine and the arrival of his person, the Antichrist. He's got people worshiping themselves instead of God. 
got everybody united together in globalism. And now he needs to get everybody to desire peace so much that they will choose peace over anything, including their convictions. That what he has to do is he has to unite everybody around this idea of world peace so that we will give up whatever we have to give up to maintain peace. God says that we should, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. We have to make peace. I mean, God says that what we have to do, and what Satan is saying is, look, I'm going to try to get you to a point as a human people where the most important thing is that you want peace so bad that you'll give up your beliefs for it. That peace becomes the ultimate thing. That no matter what happens in the world, that, that peace will be more important than your convictions. That tolerance will be more important than the truth that you know. The world is clamoring for peace. And here's what's interesting. It's not just peace. It's peace in the Middle East. Have you thought about how weird that is? This little bitty area, it's not much bigger than, I don't know, I grew up in Texas, everything seems small. But, but it's just this area. And yet, night after night on the news, all we hear about is the one shadow, one thing that overshadows all the events of our world today. Peace. Peace effort in the Middle East. Have you ever wondered why? Why does this little country cause so much division? So much conflict, so much attention. Why is it so clear that the Islamic world, along with Russia, just want to wipe out this little country? Why have they not been able to do it? Why is everybody so interested in world peace? And how do we instinctively all seem to know that as the Middle East goes, so goes the world? Once Satan has the enlightened human so pumped up on themselves, so much worshiping themselves with the exalted mind that despises violence of any kind. Once people are no longer willing to fight for what they believe and know to be right, then the soil is fertile for the arrival of the Antichrist. The desire for Middle East peace under any circumstances, no matter what it costs, is escalating and being supported by the USA, another flashing light. So in fact, the Antichrist will bring to the world exactly what they want. Peace in the Middle East. And we're going to unpack this in great detail later, but the signing of a peace agreement between the Antichrist and Israel will signal the beginning of the tribulation period. It's a promised peace. It's a lie. And after three and a half years, the Bible tells us all hell is going to break loose on earth. Regardless of all those truths, the awareness of the need and the expectation of peace in the Middle East is a key sign for us to pay attention to. The last flashing light that we're going to talk about tonight is the Bible tells us that as end times start to come together, there will be a rebirth of the Roman Empire. Remember seven weeks ago we talked how there would be four Gentile world religions, world leaders, world dominant nations? The fourth one was the Roman Empire. The ancient manuscripts from God that we call the Bible clearly tell us that as we approach end times, we will see the old Roman Empire begin to stir. 
we will see those areas begin to coalesce. We'll see them begin to gather together in both unity and purpose. In Jesus' day on earth, the great power of the world was Rome. And they held in captivity and had opposition to the Jewish people. We entered a time of the Gentiles. But when we get to the final act of God's drama, we will see those two entities reform for the final battle. As the end times begin to unfold, global alliances will emerge as nations scramble for political power and dwindling economic resources. And out of this quickly shifting situation that we're seeing every day in Europe, the coalitions of nations headed by 10 leaders will emerge to protect the interests of the West. And this alliance will constitute the Roman Empire. In Daniel 7, he sees that vision about the four earthly Gentile powers. But it's the fourth and last kingdom that scares him. In fact, he says it freaks him out. So he asks God, will you please explain this fourth kingdom? Because this one is different than the others. Daniel 7, 23, he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. For as the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another shall arise after them. He'll be different from the former ones, and he'll put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. That's Jesus. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall think to change the times and the law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion will be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. Here's what Daniel says. My thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. What God is saying here is, look, there's going to be this coalition of ten nations. They're going to come together. There's going to be somebody that rises up within them. We'll learn later who does it almost with... It's just going to happen. They're just going to rise up and take over. Three kings will be set aside. They will place themselves in charge of this new reborn Roman Empire. It'll come out of Europe. It'll include multiple alliances. And so what we need to be paying attention to is, wow, what, what if like all the European unions got together and had their own monetary system? What if they got together and started pooling their resources? What if it got hard to tell where their borders were, one to the next? What if you could travel within them and not require a passport, not even as you've changed from one country to the next? What if they started growing together, I don't know, about, right in front of our eyes maybe? And we would go, wow, I think I've read about that somewhere. And maybe they would develop armies, or maybe they would develop protection, or maybe they would have a hard thing. Is there anything else we could learn about this fourth beast? Well, no one knows how long it's going to take. But when it's fully developed, this Western power block will constitute the revived Roman Empire, and it will have the economic and political power necessary to control the Mediterranean. Its final leader, the Antichrist, will eventually be able to seize control of the ten leaders and consolidate power very much like the Roman emperor did in his day. Also notice something else about the fourth kingdom. 
when it's reborn, it's going to be unstable. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over the earth, and there shall be a fourth kingdom. Strong is iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it'll break and crush all things. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet are partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they won't hold together, just as iron doesn't mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It will break into pieces these other kingdoms, and it will stand forever. So what God's saying is, look, this rebirth of the Roman Empire, it's not going to be a solid rebirth. It's not going to be a strong Coalition. There, there are going to be problems inside that coalition. It's not going to stand on its own. Its feet aren't of iron. They're of iron and clay. And even though they're going to be successful, and even though the Antichrist is going to be able to lead them to control the Mediterranean, to control Israel, and to make a peace agreement with Israel, there's a day coming when God's going to destroy them. And His kingdom will last forever. This reborn Roman Empire will appear strong, but it won't mix, God says. And it's interesting that He sees... Clay and iron. Have, have you looked at Europe? Have you noticed what's happening in Europe? There's a mass migration into Europe of those people from the clay nations. From the south. From the desert lands. From Syria. From Iraq. From Iran. There is a lot of people moving into Europe. And not only are they moving into Europe, they're not assimilating into the culture. They're remaining independent. They're remaining on their own. They have a different God. They have a different religion. They've come into the nation, but they're not part of the nation. It's almost like iron and clay are mixed. They're not assimilating. They're not coming together. It's their weakness. They're technically living in those countries, but they're not mixing. In fact, that's what's concerning so many people in Europe right now is they have many, many immigrants who are maintaining their own cultural identity and they're changing the identity of all of Europe. Wow, another coincidence. They're clay from the south that will not join or marry well with the iron of the old Roman Empire. Europe is being reshaped in front of our eyes this very moment. They're trying to embrace and incorporate and bring in a full migration of many people from countries of play. The last Gentile world power will fall as Jesus himself destroys the Antichrist and the Roman Empire to establish his kingdom forever. Our world is headed for the final act. Warning signs are everywhere. Notice that many people want to focus on wars and rumors of wars, but Jesus told us that's not where we should have our focus. Because if we expect Look at Jesus' words in Matthew. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. For those must take place, but the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise again nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. It's interesting if you look at the literal language here. What he's saying is ethnos shall rise against ethnos. And basilia against basilia. The Greek word ethnos is the word from which we get ethnic. Basilia is the word where we get basilica. In short, Jesus says that there would be an increase in ethnic and religious wars. Different than what we've seen before. What we've seen before is nations fighting nations. What Jesus says is, no, no, when we get towards end times, it's going to be ethnic. It's going to be religious. Both world wars were a result of ethnic conflicts. Many regional wars since then, Saddam Hussein's campaign against the Kurds, have been the result of ethnic clashes. In the case of the Kosovo crisis, the showdown between religions. This increased activity and suffering that ensues is another sign that we're headed towards the end times. There are many more flashing lights I'm not going to cover in this series. We don't have time. We'd be here for like months. Things that the prophets told us to watch for. If we covered all of them, it would take us forever. Remember, 27% of the Bible is about things yet to come. There are other signs. Martyrs killed for the faith. Killed. Not just killed, but killed in a specific way. Revelation 24. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads. These people were and will be beheaded for their belief in Christ. Not just killed, not burned at the stake. The Bible's very specific. They will be beheaded. And their souls will be with Jesus. There'll be an increase in earthquakes and famines and natural disasters. There will be signs in the skies, in the stars, and in the heavens. There will be race wars and economic wars. The gospel will have a way to reach the entire world. The world will be like those living in the times of Noah. And they'll also be like those living in the times of Sodom and Gomorrah. What we're seeing is the alignment of the world's nations for the final act. Not just in Israel and Rome, but every other nation mentioned in Scripture is for the first time in world history beginning to fall together just as the prophets foretold. Persia is Iran. Medes is Iraq. Ethiopia and Libya are still there. Gomer is Germany. Targama is Turkey and southern Russia. And the armor of northern Russia, the army from the north... And, by, and now, for the first time in human history, there is an army of two million people, just like the Bible said there would be, from China. And how are they going to get to Armageddon? Through a river that dries up towards the end of the judgment. Just look at Germany. Think about Germany. After World War I, totally devastated. Reborn again. World War II, anti-Semitic, completely devastated again, reborn again. What are we seeing today? Strong anti-Semitism in Germany. 
Germany has always been anti-Semitic and now, along with France and other countries, is beginning to have a large Muslim population. These things aren't accidental. They're written in the book. Then God tells Daniel in chapter 12, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And here's what Daniel says. I mean, first of all, imagine this. Imagine you're Daniel, or we'll talk about John, and you've been shown a vision of what's happening in our world right now. And you're from the first century, and you're trying to describe a nuclear holocaust, or you're trying to describe famine like you can't believe, or you're trying to describe apostasy, and God has given you a vision, and he tells you to write it down. Think how foreign what he's saying would be to them, and yet it's reading the newspaper for us. Here's what Daniel says. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. God allowed Daniel to see our world, and it freaked Daniel out. His color changed. So Peter tells us, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed. In other words, not only did we hear God's voice on the mountain when Jesus went up there with us, but we've had prophets tell us thing after thing after thing after thing, then they're all true. And he says, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Who the morning star is? We'll get to that. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from somebody's own interpretation. In other words, I'm not reading to you my thoughts about what God's going to do. I'm reading to you what God himself says he's going to do. The Bible's very clear. This doesn't come from man. This comes from God. And once you start studying it, you realize it can only come from God because it's too amazingly incredible. We need to give heed to what Peter says. Until the dawn days and the morning star rises in our hearts. Peter's not talking about the world. He's talking about what's happening in your heart. Even if a person is a believer, saved, baptized in the Spirit, destined for heaven. If they don't pay attention to the light that God has provided in this world, they will be walking in darkness. And it doesn't mean they'll be refused entry into heaven. It means, though, that they'll be stumbling and groping for answers and understanding when the world doesn't make sense to them. Trying to understand what's going on and becoming fearful and confused. Believers walking in darkness but not enlightened by the Spirit. A covenant from God is as good as done. His covenants with Abraham, David, the Jewish people, and us are playing out moment by moment as we approach end times. It is His faithfulness that we see in His promises. His faithfulness gives us hope and trust and peace and confidence. Even though the world around us is crumbling and changing and headed to an end, something in us says that God has this. And what is it that's in us? Every promise He's ever made from the beginning of time until this moment. 
We don't have to walk in darkness. We don't have to walk in confusion because he's revealed to us in advance what's going to happen. As we get to end times, we see the apostasy of humanism. We see the globalism. We see the gathering of God's people back into the promised land. We see the organization of the Roman Empire being reborn but not really strong. We see signs in heaven. We see signs. We see all things. And what Peter says is, even though you pay attention to all those, don't miss the morning star rising in your heart. And make sure that God's light is shining through you into this darkness that's around us. Let me read the final words of Revelation to you from John. And we'll close. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who's thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies these things says, surely I am coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus. He's the rising star. The whole point of the covenant, the whole point of what we're seeing in our world is to make sure during these times that that rising star is rising in your heart too. That's what the end times are all about. That God will over and over reveal himself to people who don't yet know him in different ways throughout every part of the end times, hoping that they too will begin to see Jesus as the rising star. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are a covenant God. I thank you that we can trust everything you say. I thank you, God, that you love us, that you care for us. I thank you, God, that we can look to your word and see over and over and over that when man was unfaithful, you were faithful. That when we did our thing, you kept doing your thing. That when you had to scatter people from Babel and from the Holy Land and people all over the world had to be scattered. You didn't give up your promise to bring them back. You were faithful. And you tell us what's about to happen in our world and we see it playing out. God, there can be no doubt that you are who you say you are and you're going to do what you said you're going to do. But God, sadly, in your word, it tells us that despite all this overwhelming evidence, There are going to be people who don't believe. They're going to reject you. They're going to hold on to their view of humanism. They're going to hold on to their ideas of how the world should be since they're their own God. God, would you break their hearts? Would you put us in their path? Would you give us an opportunity to tell them the truth about what's happening? God, would you move us to our knees to pray for these people that you would send light into their darkness so that they too won't miss the shining star. God, we love you. We thank you. And we trust you because you are who you say you are and you are going to do what you promised to do. Thank you for being a covenant, God, and for bringing us into covenant with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.